Welcome to a Lunch with Biggie, a podcast about small business and creatives sharing their stories and inspiring you. My guest today started a business because of his wisdom teeth. He came up with an odang hummus of an idea and took a dip with the sharks in the shark tank and landed a few. He grew his brand to over 50 states and over 10,000 stores. Let's find out and let's talk a little bit more with and please welcome CPG entrepreneur, founder, and investor, Jesse Wolf. What's going on, man? What's up, brother? Thanks for having me, man. Thank you, man. I've been wanting to have you for a while because uh, I, I, love, I love your story. I love what you kind of uh, what you're what you're doing uh, and what you're creating. So I definitely appreciate you taking the time to to have lunch with me today. Yeah, no, super excited. You know, I uh, I I saw a lot of podcasts pop up right over the course of COVID, and uh, I would say probably ninety seven percent of them didn't make it, including my own. Uh, you know, for whatever reasons. But uh, you know, when you started yours, I was like, this is. This is good. This is going to be something, and and uh, you're here and you're thriving, man. I mean, this is a great podcast. Thing. I appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. Uh, it's uh, it's been a year, so and little by little, I'm kind of learning and growing, kind of uh, how any small little business does. So, first question, obviously, always, um, what's your go-to lunch sandwich? Oh my gosh, that is, hmm. Well, you know, Biggie, you know, I'm a foodie, so that's a tough one. I would have to say I got two that immediately popped to my mind. Uh, one's uh, very Ohio-ish, which is where I'm from. Okay. And that's the uh, the old OG classic fried bologna and cheese sandwich. Nice. Uh, white. It's got to be white Wonder Bread. It's got to be uh, Oscar Mayer bologna, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Uh, it's got to be fried extra crispy. Okay. And it's got to be Hellman's mayo, right? With some, uh, American, uh, craft single that that's a, we, it's funny. We just had this whole conversation with my, uh, my wife and I talked about that and she brought it up, but she, I was like, wow, I'm like, you lived in high class. Cause she was like deli cheese. And I was like, deli cheese. Deli, no. I was like, no, I was like, no deli cheese. I'm like, it's gotta be that synthetic melty, yeah. that melty goodness. Yeah. I was like, that's the good stuff. Yeah. I'm like, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And, and my, my number two, uh, you know, that I think would fight for that is man, just the, the peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a fiend. I eat peanut butter and jelly. I, it's funny before we start podcast, I'm eating peanut butter. Yeah. I love peanut butter, man. So PB and J is just slap creamy versus crunchy creamy all day long. And the other big one is, uh, peanut butter on both sides of the bread or only one side of the bread? peanut butter, both sides. Okay, good. Yeah, good. It cool. helps hold in. Cause then you can put more jelly. Yes. Okay. It holds yes. more jelly. Yes. Uh, shout out to the lunch ladies back yeah. in elementary school <laughs> who put uh, copious amounts of jelly on there and uh, you know, got me hooked on that. That those, I would purposely forget to sign up for lunch. Like I was I, in first grade, I was not a very bright little kid, I guess. Cause I could have just ordered cold lunch. Yeah. But if you didn't sign up for lunch, you automatically got cold lunch. So uh, my teacher was always like, why don't you sign up for lunch? And it was because I wanted the PB&Js, man. They slapped. They were so thick. <laughs> I, lo- I love it. Yeah. I love it. So good. So good. <laughs> ah. Okay. So let's let's unpack a little bit of the intro. So okay. um, so for folks that don't know Jesse, um, I was introduced to Jesse, ironically, just like everyone else that, that didn't maybe know him. I saw him on TV uh, for and I, and I read things about him because he had a small business called Odang Hummus. So let's first kind of go, let's first kind of unpack that at first. So based on, and, and so that way you're not kind of fully retelling the story. Um, like, and what I mentioned in the intro, you had a wisdom teeth got pulled, basically couldn't eat anything, got, couldn't trying to figure out soft, soft things to eat that were good for you and filling, um, decided to do hummus, but then were kind of bored with the hummus flavor. So you started kind of playing around with it and it just kind of blew up. So 
Tell me a little bit about how you went, because once that happened and you had the aha uh-huh moment, like, hey, this is great. My friends love this. You then went the route of farmer's market, right? Yeah. And then from there, at the same time, were you still at UCF at school or you or not at school anymore? Yeah, no, I was I was right in the middle of my college career, if you will, and um, working a full time actual career. It was kind of a hot mess at the time. Uh, yeah. So the last thing I really had time for was a, a business venture, but, uh, I did it. <laughs> and what was interesting was you, so like, at what point did you just say like, how, how did that mind? Let's, I'm kind of curious on some of these things. Where is one is like the step where you're like, Hey, I want to do farmer's markets because I think this may work. Um, and then, and obviously the nice thing about farmer's market is you can, you can still have a full-time job and do it on the weekends and yep. type of thing like that. Um, at what point did you go, mm, I can probably do this full time? Oh, that's a great story. I don't know if I've ever really told publicly, to be honest with you. So it, from the moment I had the Odang idea, there like a whole fall, uh, spring semester had gone by where I wrote the business plan for a class. That's how really I was like, oh my God, this is like a real, real business potential here. Um, and by the time that class had ended, I was in a business plan competition at UCF. Cause I already had the business plan wrote and it was my third attempt at this business plan competition where I didn't even make the, you know, make it in before the two years with different business ideas. I almost didn't do it this third one because I was so upset about the two previous years. I was like, ah, oh, screw it. I'm not doing it. Out of curiosity, what were the other two business? Contests? So, uh, the, the one before it was called bumper love. Okay. Uh, and that was back when Florida used to have a real love bug problem. Uh, I caught wind. My buddy just graduated college and was working for Hertz and Hertz was having a real problem with love bugs, um, you know, just destroying basically cars and cars paints. So like long story short, when you're, when you buy a new car, they come with like this plastic wrap on the bumpers and stuff. So I was like, well, why don't we just put the plastic wrap back on the cars during love bug season? So dude, craziest little story. I figured it all out. I became a distributor over the state of Florida for that product. Uh, and I was working with Hertz and you're talking, I was like 20, 22 or 23 at the time. Uh, Hertz was on board. It was $1.8 million for three weeks of work twice a year. So it was a $4 million business. Uh, but we had to wrap 6,000 cars. It was crazy. It was crazy money. Uh, and I was like, Oh my God, this is it. I'm, I'm going to do it. You know, like we got one and the Hertz was all about it, Yeah. but we couldn't get it below. Like I was like 16 bucks a car and they needed to be like nine bucks a car to make it like efficient. And then the other hurdle was they wanted a product where you couldn't see it at all. And I'm like, with the time, you know, we just couldn't, we couldn't make it work. So I pitched that, uh, which I really thought was going to get in and, and, you know, cause the year before, um, oh, the year before was one called go box marketing, um, which was, we were going to basically, uh, give pizza shops, uh, and to go take out places free to go in pizza boxes in exchange like Pepsi, it'd be a Pepsi pizza box. You know, and so you'd be selling almost advertising. Yeah, which is smart. Yeah, it was it was smart, and there's been companies that have tried it, it's just never like caught for whatever reason. Uh, So yeah, so those are two I thought decent ideas. Yeah. The second year, I literally had Hertz ready to cut us a check, and we couldn't quite figure it out. Uh, And UCF turned us away. Then the third year, I got this crazy hummus idea, and I was like, I'm not going to do it. And then one of my professors was basically forced me to do it to turn it in the night it was due, Uh, and I got in. You know, so from there, were, there was like that four months where I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to do this. It's just an idea. You know, it was a good idea at first, not going to do it. 
got in, ended up taking third, which broke my heart because I thought for sure I'd won this yeah. thing. I really needed the capital. It was like 15 grand plus all these like extra, you know, great services you got for free. I got four. So then I was, I kind of just took the summer off. I was like, nah, screw this. It's, you know, nobody obviously likes the idea. I got third. Uh, you know, so it literally started in January of 2013 was the original idea. I didn't launch it until really April of 2014. It took over a year and a half before I massaged things out, kind of, you know, fell, got back up, fell, got back up. Um, and, and, you know, farmer's markets, as that year and a half kind of went by, which, you know, looking back on it, I, you know, I regret that kind of failure point, but it taught me so much mm-hmm. about staying consistent. You're going to fail. Like that was such a huge building block for my career and I didn't realize it. Because now I do the same thing, just much faster. Yeah. Right. Like it's okay to fail. So you fail faster. Fail faster. But fail you're forward. also fail forward. Fail forward. Right? Gotcha. Bingo. Um. Yeah. And then you know it was one of those things where I was winning all these you know going to these business plan competitions. You know I was I was getting all these people's attention with it and getting a great feedback. And I was like, well, it's one thing to get feedback and give away hummus for free, but it's another thing for someone to open their wallet and give you five dollars. So I was like, where can I do that? And I'm cold calling. You know, this is 2014, so selling food online really wasn't a big thing at the time. Uh, you know, so I'm cold calling small grocery stores around here. Um, Publix, I'm trying to cold call Publix. They're not having it at all. Yeah. You know, and I was like, okay, well, where can I go to get someone to pay me money? And I, I literally, I was, I was mulling over this this uh, question in my head for weeks. And I just ended up at a farmer's market, the Lake Yola one on a Sunday with some friends. And I, I just kind of hit me like a brick. And I was like, oh, here. You could sell here, you know, like do it. Yeah. Uh, so I immediately went up to the market manager and I was like, hey, I uh, I have a hummus company. I'd love to sell here, you know? So like, where do I sign up? And uh, she just kind of laughs at me and she goes, you and about 500 other people. And I was like, okay, yeah, where do I sign up? She's like, no, there's a two-year waiting list. I'm like, what? I was like, I'll sit next to the soap lady. And she's like, no, you know, that soap lady makes 300 grand a year. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, you know, what is going on, you know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that was my journey into how, you know, I, I figured out to go into farmer's markets. I was like, oh, this is the ticket right here. Yeah. And so did you guys start doing, did you start doing different start farmer's market or did you finally get into Lake Eola or were you doing different ones? <laughs> we got rejected by every farmer's market in the state of Florida. No kidding. I mean, I tried them all. Um, and I finally got into one. It was in the Dr. Phillips YMCA on like Thursday nights. They were like, yeah, we had like nine vendors. It was small. And I was like, sick. And I was like, on a Tuesday, they told me, yes, you're good for this weekend. You know, and I literally uh, was getting ready to start making hummus on Friday. And I get a call and she's like, hey, market's closed. It's done. No more. And I was like, again, it was another moment where I wanted to quit. I was like, my God, nobody wants me in these markets, you know, because there would be some challenge. Like there was a, um, a Greek food truck that had a hummus appetizer. And I'm like, we sell a completely different product. Like I yeah. get it. Yeah. But they're slinging gyros and stuff and, you know, shish kebabs and that type of yeah. thing. We're doing, hum- like, take them hummus, you know, whatever. So, good. Na- it was called Good Neighbors. It was in Oviedo. I don't know if you remember it or not. Um, it was actually on a farm, which was pretty cool. It, I just caught wind. It was just opening, and it was going to be a big deal. So, I raced over there, and I was trying to email the lady on the way, and she's like, yeah, come over. You know, I'm there. I'm like, okay. So, I get out of my car, and I'm like, hey, hey, I see she's on a farm. Farm's gated off. And I'm yelling at her across the field. I'm like, hey, I'm the hummus guy. And she goes, you're a homeless guy? And I go, hummus. She goes, do you need food? And I'm like, what? I mean, I'm hungry, but like, no, I'm not homeless. I have a car. I drove here, you know? Uh, 
and it was funny. And that was my first market. And we kicked the doors in on that market in two weeks. I mean, we just did everything you weren't supposed to do at a farmer's market. You know, we made a lot of noise. We made our booth super colorful. We had dog bowls full of treats and water for the dogs. We had stamps for the kids. Anything we could do to get you to stop and at least hang out for a second. Yeah. It always made the booth look really busy. Mm-hmm. And by week two, we had a line so big they had to relocate our tent for the third week because we were blocking other vendors. And I was like, this is it, right? So I went back to Lake Eola like that third week and I packed like 30 tubs of hummus in a cooler, a soft side of cooler. And I saw that market manager. Now remember, this is like six months later. Yeah. And I said, hey, is there still that waiting list? And she goes, yeah. And I said, listen, I got into good neighbors. We're doing well. Here's my cooler. Just eat this hummus. I gave you a little bit of hummus. Here's some pita chips. She, you know, share it. Well, I purposely gave her so much that she couldn't eat it all. So she gave it to everybody. So she had to share. Yeah. And then literally that was on Sunday, Monday morning, I had an email saying, welcome to, welcome to the Lake Hill Farmer's Market. So, and that's how we kind of, you know, bamboozled our way in. I like it. Guerrilla marketing. Yeah. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so you went, so then this is happening and you're kind of, it's building up. So how long did you do the Farmer's Markets for before you decided you're going to do Shark Tank and, and all of that? Not long enough. I was gonna say, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, not long. enough. I feel enough. like it was like only like a, a, a like. A, 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 I'm curious to see what the number is because I have a number in my head of what I think it is. We so we launched in farmers markets like spring, April, March, April. It was actually like April 24th. I think is the exact date uh, of 2014. We filmed for Shark Tank uh, June 10th of 2015. So, and that's filming. So we were already auditioning for Shark Tank like January of 2015. So like seven months, seven months in. Yeah. I mean, it was crazy. And again, the only reason I went was because our fans that were coming to this farmer's market and our friends were like, dude, you guys should be on Shark Tank. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it'd be great. We caught wind the night before that they were down in Miami. Like I knew nothing about it. My friend told me and she was like, oh, you should go. And I'm like, dude, we sling hummus at a farmer's market. We are not ready for Shark Tank. And I was like, you should go. She had a, a good idea. Okay. And she's like, well, let's both go, you know, basically. And then on the way down there, she goes, just kidding. I'm not pitching, but you are. And I was like, oh, man, what the heck, you know? But I was like, screw it. We'll just, you know, we'll wear the bracelet and put it on social media. Heck, yeah. And uh, we somehow got through. I still, to this day, I'm like, whoa. Well, I mean, it does help the fact that you, you've you done, uh, you've pitched before. So you did some pitching. So that definitely helps. Yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely uh an interesting concept or a different, uh, definitely a different world to go through it. Yeah. Um, for sure. Um, and we'll talk a little more about shark tank. I, I'm kind of, I was kind of curious. Well, actually no, we'll talk shark tank and then we'll talk about the next step. Cause obviously as you grow, things change for how you produce your product. So, um, and that's actually a good transition on the fact that how I actually met you because, um, I obviously did see you on TV. Um, he did go, he, you know, Jesse and I went, go to the same, go, went to the same university, UCF. Um, and ironically, Jesse and I kind of look alike. Like we're both big guys with beards, <laughs> beards yeah. um, you know, dark obviously hair. in dark hair. Yeah. So, and the fact, the funny part is I actually got to meet Jesse. Um, we knew each other on social media. We never met him in real life. And I finally got to meet him because of another podcast, um, that we both enjoy and love called Tom and Dan, a mediocre time. And they did their version of shark tank. Um, and so I went in to talk about deli fresh threads. And so he knew who I was. Jesse already knew who I was. 
Um, but it was my way of being able to pitch. And it was really just a way to kind of advertise your company. It wasn't like anyone was going to buy or pitch or give me any money for my business. But, um, but I just wanted to be part of it. And just, I also really wanted to meet Jesse. That was really the key. I wanted to meet him just because we got along too well on social media. Um, and then when we met, what I love is the fact that you actually, you did it to me. You literally told me, I remember it was like a February and you're like, you're going to go because we had already been interacting and, and hanging out and talking. And you're like, you're going on Shark Tank in February. And I was like, no, I'm not. And he's like, yeah, you're going. You're going to I don't care if I have to get you in a car, but you're going. He's like, I'm going to force you to go. And uh, and so you gave me quite a bit of insight on what I needed to do to go do it. Um, obviously I was not as, uh, successful as you, um, in the, in the sense, but I got to experience it and it was, I did do the whole wristband thing. I absolutely loved the idea of it. Was it something that maybe I would probably come back again? I probably would do it again. Um, I would probably just have to do it a little bit further into the, I, I just need to get a little bit, I think I need a little bit more in, in, in the world of, uh, of my brand, I guess is probably what I think of. But, um, my questions kind of go for when it comes to the Shark Tank. So, um, for those that don't know, you did get a, you did get a deal mm-hmm. um, from the Sharks. Um, but what's interesting to me is about the deal is, and I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about how this works because you've been very good at the whole idea of the pivot and adaptability. Um, because obviously, hummus is dominated by some l- larger companies. Oh yeah. Um, to get into. And, uh, and your big thing when you were doing the thing was you actually talked about something that was a sa- was actually a salad dressing, um, which had never been done before because it was actually, and I'll let you kind of talk about it. Um, so when you went in, did you have those ideas already in mind? Like you had kind of like, what other, what else can I, what other products can I have besides the hummus? Cause my hummuses are different flavors. Like, you know, like barbecue and like in black bean and, and all of this and like, you know, Buffalo style and stuff like that. What, um, like how, when you went in for your approach, cause I think that was the, the, the clincher was like, Whoa, you have something different. Like you're coming up with something different. Um, how did that whole process go through when you were dealing with the sharks on that? Yeah. So, when, you know, there was a lot of overlapping happening at this time. And, and you know, it's kind of funny because, like, looking back on my road with Odang, we, I didn't know what CPG stood for, right, until I walked into basically Publix's office, right? Yeah. Um, which stands for Consumer Packaged Goods, by the way. Uh, and that's the space I was in, right? So anything in the grocery store or Target or any of those places sell, it's basically a CPG product. So being naive was, like, really a blessing because – when I was auditioning for Shark Tank, you know, from January until literally June when we filmed, I was also already in the works of talking to Whole Foods, and I was in the works of talking to Publix. Um, and, you know, I was really big, and, I, I you know, there, there's some discretionary uh, tale to this. I was big at the fake it till you make it at that time, right? Mm-hmm. Because I kept getting turned down, and I noticed quickly, well, we're just a small farmer's market brand. So... Can I ask a question? Real yeah. Quick? When you're talking to these brands, are you at this point producing the hummus still yeah. in house, yeah. like like almost like uh, cottage style? The back of East End. Okay. Yeah. So, so you okay? So commissary, yep. commissary style with a team. Yes, we had with like, a team. Uh, okay. A crew of five people. Okay. Which, you know, I, I thank them every day yep. for yep. for that amazing work because uh, we were a little factory, man. We would go in, we'd pop up at East End, we crank out. 500 tubs, a thousand tubs of hummus. I mean, it was crazy the number of, uh, how efficient we were. Uh, but yeah, like going to fill like whole foods, wasn't that bad. Publix was, was going to be an issue. Uh, and with Publix, 
I went in and I'll, the first, it was the first real, because like Whole Foods meetings at that time, they're much different now. You would just walk into a Whole Foods store and talk to like the grocery manager. It was very casual. Um, and then right as I was, of course, trying to get into Whole Foods, they were changing the platform. Uh, so with Publix, I was like, oh my God, this is like a real meeting, right? So again, I was always trying to make Godang look bigger than we were because I didn't want them to be like, well, you're a nobody, you know? So I had this idea because I kept listening to my customers at the farmer's market say, I put your hummus on salad because salad dressing is so high calorie. And I remember back in the day, I used to work at Applebee's and I used to love that uh, Asian chicken salad they have. It's like 1800 calories. And I'm like, it's literally like coleslaw mix with like basically an Asian coleslaw dressing and chicken. It's all in the salad dressing. And they used to always bother me because I used to love it, but I hated eating it, right? Because it was so bad for you. So I, I was like, man, I was like, if you just thinned out hummus into a dressing format, that would be killer. Little did I know the amount of food science that would go in behind that to actually make that work. But for that Publix meeting, uh, which was in like May, like right before we filmed for Shark Tank, uh, I go in and I pitch my hummus and behind it, literally Biggie, the night before, I go to Publix, I buy a competitor's salad dressing, I go home, I dump out all the dressing right down the drain, I peel the labels off, I wash the bottles, I put my my watered down hummus in it, okay? I had a graphic designer quickly make up labels, you know, I mean, we literally just mocked up some like fast labels. They looked really legit though and we glued them to the bottle. And we put some heat, uh, heat shrink wrap on top. They looked like a production product. We took them in and we set them off in the background to show her, oh, we're here pitching the hummus today, but we're a bigger company. So as we're like taste testing the, the hummus in this meeting, she's like, well, what are those? I'm like, oh, these are future innovations. You know, we're a bigger company than we are, blah, blah, blah. You know, everyone thinks we're small. We're not, you know, whatever. And uh, she's like, oh, I want to try them. And I'm like, oh, Nah, see, these needed refrigerated, and we didn't re- we didn't know you wanted to try them. Are bad because it would taste awful, absolutely awful. Uh, so we left, and about three weeks later, we get a call saying, "Hey, you're in, you're in for the hummus." And I was like, "Oh my god, sick!" And then a week later, I get a call saying, "Ah, just kidding. Uh, unfortunately, things came up, i.e., a certain competitor with a red lid said yep. no, you know, wouldn't allow it, basically." Uh, and but she's like, "Come back in for those hummus dressings. We really like those. I want to try those. Can you send them to me?" And I'm like, "Oh crap." You know, so I kind of like talked smack and then got called on it. And uh, I had about 30 days. So we filmed Shark Tank in June, the beginning of June. When I got back at the end of June, I had another meeting with Publix. So so when you basically were on the show saying, yeah, we actually have Publix that's interested, <laughs> it, it was true. Oh, very, yeah. It was true. So then, okay, so then. <laughs> <laughs> Chaos. So, so then at what point does this all of a sudden now you go from, I'm making this at my house and I'm like buying, I'm buying everything. We're doing it in house, like kind of like in a commissary to, Oh crap. I now have to go to uh, like have someone else actually produce it for me. Um, because you're now going to someone who actually has to create, I'm assuming you have to give them your recipe or whatever and yeah. try to find a company that will do it mass pro- and, and, produ- and kind of do mass production of your hummus. So this is where 99.9% of food startups get stuck. Right. Yep. It's very easy to make it out of your house. A lot of stuff does fall under uh, Florida commissary or cottage law, right? Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of things that don't. And going to a commissary kitchen is great, but commissary kitchens are still limited to size. 
the biggest thing is storage. Like we made a refrigerated product. So thank God, I, you know, I'm just a really resourceful person. I figured out that uh, home brewers use deep chest freezers and convert them to refrigerators with like this device. It's like a hundred bucks. So I was in a two bedroom apartment at the time, had a one car garage, and I bought two giant deep chest freezers and converted them to refrigerators for like 500 bucks for the pair. And that's how we're able to store it because East End didn't have room to store my hummus. So where do you put a thousand to two thousand tubs of hummus? Yeah, you know it's going to go bad. So you know that's the stuff you get hung up on is where am I going to keep it if it's refrigerated? Where do you freeze it if it needs to be frozen? How do you transport it? How do you sell it if it needs to be frozen? Um, you know the whole nine yards. So like now, I mean, obviously I can do it with my eyes closed because I'm I'm much further along in the space. But I just see so many brands that get stuck on that. Oh, we're making it out of our our commercial kitchen, or we're making it out of a commissary. We can't find a co-packer. See, we couldn't find a co-packer either. Like for the hummus, there was no co-packer that would make hummus under basically 5,000 pounds, yeah. uh, you know, batches. And there was no way. It went bad in 45 days. So even if we could afford to buy it, which we could, there was no place to sell that much hummus at that time. So it was like the chicken or the egg. Well, I need both. You know what I mean? Like I need a co-packer to give me a chance to make a smaller run to get me yeah. on my feet. And I yeah. learned that is the hardest part for a brand to transition from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then vice versa, when we made the salad dressings, we had a lot of co-packers tell us no immediately because it was hummus. They're like, too thick. And I'm like, this is like a product you've never seen before. It's not, it's not what you think it is. So we had to literally sell ourselves to co-packers. So then did you, so did you guys actually you actually came up with a version of a of a salad dressing, so it was like you guys came up with it, um, and then once you did that, then you're like, then you have to basically because it's brand new, nothing, it's new to market, so Never existed, no, no right? one no one knew what the heck it was. So then, how do I produce it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so then, so you had to you had to deal with all of that then. Yeah, I mean hummus, it's it's the oil and the vinegar scenario, right? I mean you're taking a solid, a chickpea, even if you grind it into mush, it's still a particulate, right? It never dissolves, you know. And you're mixing it with oils, vinegars, and water. So what happens is, no matter how much you grinded it, it or we ground it down, it would uh, good word. It would uh, separate and create like a chickpea puck in the bottom of the salad dressing, and all the other stuff would float to the top. So if you poured it, you, you got no yeah. chickpea, right? Yeah. It was a really funky flavor. So over, you know, I mean, we massaged it for like two years after that, right? Making sure that it would stay together. We end up using like aquafaba to help bind it and stuff, like some really cool creative ways to do it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the initial co-packer runs were nightmares. You know, and then on top of that, and this is, I won't deep dive too far into the food science aspect of it, but your recipes can and probably will change as you scale. I was going to say, because you're now, now you're not doing like five, a thousand tubs per se, you're doing 10,000 tubs. Yeah. So now numbers and recipes and everything, all the things, different variations. Well, and it's funny, right? Because like a a pound of uh, cayenne and 250 pounds of cayenne in, they don't scale directly. It's very strange. You would think it'd be like, you know, equal, but it could be spicier. It could be less spicy depending on how big of a batch you're making. And it's wild because all ingredients do that. So even if you have a recipe, your 5,000-gallon recipe is different if you try to scale it back to the original. So, but you might get so, the exact same flavor, yeah, which yeah. is so strange, right? Um, but, That's insane. But yeah, it is. And, and the biggest thing that people don't understand in food science is when you scale a food product, it's not necessarily the flavor profile, but it's 
how you have to produce it to hit grocery store standards. So like they'll put like on, on bottled and canned stuff, it can't be less than a year's shelf life. So I could have done a completely different product. I only had a three-month shelf life, but the grocery store wouldn't buy it. So you, you then get into that game of how shelf life works. And, you know, then you have to, like, for instance, we had to hot fill, which in essence, you kind of cook the dressing uh, to get it shelf stable, right? Versus if we refrigerated it, you know, we might have used a different product. It's yeah. a whole thing. So. so at the end, you were able to, after you got your, so after you got, like, the deal, like, forget, like, yes, you got the deal with Shark Tank, but after you got, like, when, how much time by the time that you got back from doing Shark Tank and Publix was waiting for you, um, did you actually provide them some dressing for them to use? Were you able to do that in the course of like the, <laughs> the month or did it just kind of, uh, how did that process go? I, I literally was making, I kid you not, I was making salad dressings in my hotel in Los Angeles for Shark Tank. Like I was R&Ding in the bathroom. Like I had, you know, I went to Target and I bought, you know, a little food processor because I was just trying to figure out how to do yeah, this. Yeah. And when I got home, I worked 15, I'm not even joking, 15 hours a day, nonstop, um, you know, because I just had quit my full-time job like maybe four or five months earlier than that. Uh, well, no, probably a year earlier, a year before that. So, I mean, it was full-time, I think, right? To try to figure these dressings out. And, and I delivered her an incredible dressing for the day we pitched them. To which she said yes, and the delivery date was in October. Um, and coincidentally, like the worst storm ever happened, and Shark Tank called me and said I was airing the exact same weekend Publix wanted me to deliver. So, <laughs> you know, we had found a co-packer in that time. We got him up and running. The launch could not have gone worse. Like, could not have gone worse if we tried. Like, everything hit at the exact same time, and none of us were ready for it or the magnitude, and it was just, it was a nightmare. It really, we, it should have flatlined us, but we pulled through somehow. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know, but I think it also kind of shows the resourcefulness and being able to figure out different ways. But I, I think what's impressive is the pivoting aspect that you went with um, going from the fact of like, okay, well, I am hummus. I started with hummus and I'm still hummus, but now I'm, I'm a different, a new look of hummus. Um, to be able to do and they're, and the, the hummus dressings were deli are delicious. Um, I know you also you know not only did you get into Publix but you also got into Walmart. I mean there's a reason why you're you guys were in like you know 10,000 locations and whatever in 50 different states so it's pretty uh, pretty impressive um, when it comes to that. The, the craziest story on the pivot was we launched the salad dressings out of basically accident like you know we knew they were they were there was interest in them but like when we first launched them they didn't do that great. And that's because we, the formula, the original formula was very uh, low calorie because we thought that's what people wanted. But we could have been 100 calories and still crushing the competition. Like, I learned so much in that time frame of like, sometimes you can go too far. We were 20 calories. It did not need to be 20 calories. And we learned that quickly because you got so much better of a product for 50 calories. You know, and in 50 calories, we didn't realize we didn't have to try that hard to hit 50 calories. And when that dawned on me was working with Walmart, I got invited out to Walmart uh, for this huge event they do every year. Um, and they, they hand select the people that go out there. We go out there. We ended up becoming the number one product at the whole thing, which is insane. Our dips were like super exciting. People loved them. And Walmart said yes to the dips. About a month later, they said no. And I was like, okay. We're getting bullied by... And what I think is funny, the way you, you named it, and that's what... Because like... 
you named it dips because it was like almost like it changes your it changes the characteristic. Um, I think when we were talking about it, you had mentioned like if we maybe name it something else because um, it's you know and then because they're different flavors, then it's not technically it's still hummus, but it's a dip. It's more so versatile. Yeah, it's more versatile. It gives you more options to do things. Um, so that, I always thought that was very interesting when you when you brought that up to me because I was like dips. I was like and then I was like oh I'm like now you're not. You're not in the same market. You're not in the same field. So yeah. therefore, I shouldn't. I shouldn't be in that uh, issue. Well, well, we tried hard to to figure out how to shake. Yeah. I mean, because when you start getting into grocery, those big guys don't want to lose their shelf space. Correct. I mean, they pay millions of dollars every year for that shelf space. So, like, you know, the red brands owned by Pepsi. Mm-hmm. So you're not you're not upsetting Sabra. You're upsetting Pepsi. I mean, it's one of the five biggest food companies in the world, right? So when when we finally got turned down by it was weird. We kept getting yeses and then kept getting no's. And I was like, mm, I know what's happening here. So then we were going to food trade shows and the Sabra team was coming over, looking at our innovation and just, you know, asking questions to my team, to me, trying to shake us down. It was, it was literally their food scientists. So I, I kind of got the idea. I'm like, we were reform. So Walmart, when they said no, I was completely defeated. I was so upset. Cause I'm like, how do we go from the number one product that day to no? Like, it makes no sense. A week later, the salad dressing buyer reached out because she had seen the dressings. And I just had kind of tweaked them again. And they were really nice. And she was like, I need these. Come back in. So literally, I flew right back out, had another meeting with her. And she was like, um, I, like, I brought three. She goes, I need more flavors. She goes, I like these. I want to bring them in. Give me more flavors. I went home. I literally locked myself in my house for four days. Uh, actually it was funny. I, there was doing construction next door, the, uh, apartment next door. So I drove out to my grandma's house in Daytona, locked myself in her house for four days. And poor, my poor grandparents are saints. And I just let these food processes rip. I mean, I worked around the clock Monday morning. I sent her out 14, 12 or 14 bottles of dressing, different flavors. Uh, I overnighted them Tuesday morning. I get a phone call. She goes, you need to be on a plane here tomorrow. So I get out there. I'm like, I just got back. My God, you know? And she's like, I've just never had a brand turn around anything this fast. And these are all like stellar. So we had like a war meeting with Walmart where we had to figure out the the seven dressings she was going to bring in. I thought we were going to get three. And then it was like, oh crap, now we have to deliver on I this. was going to say, yeah. now, like, okay, yeah, I can make these, but I got to mass produce now. Well, and, and what was interesting is we were kind of had that on its way, but that's where the massive pivot in our brand came from because I the way that whole meeting went was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. And this is the largest retail on earth. So I flew back and the whole flight home, I'm like, this is, this is it. Like this is lightning quote unquote in a bottle, right? What's in a bottle. And I was like, we're no longer doing hummus. And, and I like hit me like, I mean, just a thousand pound brick. And I was like, we we're no longer a hummus company. I was like, Sabra and Pepsi are trying to sabotage us. And at the time it was just getting worse. And I saw it coming. So what people don't understand is in the food space, you'll see some kind of crazy deal sometimes at like Publix. And you're like, oh man, what a killer deal. Like three for five. That's not because they're nice. That's because there's a motive behind that. So like Publix or uh, Sabra was getting so gritty trying to put everyone else out of business. A lot of us newer startups, they were doing buy one, get three free tubs of hummus in some, in some markets. We can't keep up with that. No. You know, and that's when I found out doing a bunch of research and back end stuff. Sabra's monthly marketing budget was $55 million. Ours was 500000 for the year. Wow. There was no way we could keep up with it. Yeah. 
So I went back and I told my investors and my partners and stuff how the meeting went stellar, great. And I said, guys, we should stop doing hummus. And they basically all like looked at me and said, get out, you know, like we're done here, you know? And I was like, no, I, I'm dead serious. I want to kill hummus. We're going to be in everything but hummus company. I was like, I'm looking at kind of, I call it my blue ocean strategy. I found a bunch of white space in the grocery store. The salad dressing aisle is dormant. I just had the Publix buyer like lock me in her office or Walmart buyer lock me in her office and tell me you're not leaving until we fix this. Uh, never had that happen. And I said, I got more stuff we can go after and let's make Sabra buy us. Like that would be the goal. Like, yeah. you know, that's the sweetest yeah, yeah. revenge ever, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, and I said, what we're going to do though is we're not going to tell the world we stopped making hummus. And they're like, no, get out. So I left that meeting kind of upset because I'm like, I, how do you not see this? I told my VP of sales, I was like, listen, you and I are going to do this covert. We're not going to tell anybody, but I don't want you to mention the word hummus. Don't take a hummus meeting. Don't sell hummus, nothing for the next 60 days. Only salad dressings. And it would be, we'd make a phone call. We'd get a, yeah, we'll, we'll take a meeting on the hummus. We'd have the meeting. We'd fly out there. We'd get a maybe. They'd kind of yoink us around. The salad dressing, we'd call. We'd pitch. We'd go fly out. We'd land deal. Call, pitch, land deal. Call, pitch, land deal. And in the 10 rejections or kind of wonky, you know, yes, no's we'd get from hummus. I thought we'd land three of the 10 for the dressings. We landed all 10. Yeah. And I was like, holy crap, right? So... <laughs> my my investors are like are seeing these these numbers coming and they're like we need to have a meeting like what what is happening and i was like oh my god i'm like it's strange right and they're like yeah and i was like everyone uh, just likes the salad yeah I, I was like well i got a confession to make i'm like remember when i said we're gonna stop selling hummus and they go yeah I'm like well we did and they're like oh what and i was like but we just got 12 brand new accounts you know worth hundreds of thousands of dollars each right yeah and they're like we see it now. So for the next almost two years, we told the world we would go on social media and we'd advertise hummus. Yeah. And my favorite part of this whole thing was we would go to the trade shows then because we knew that, you know, they were watching us, all the other competition. We were making these extremely fake hummus products and showcasing them at these massive trade shows. Like we had a zero calorie hummus. That's scientifically impossible, Right. We had a zero carb hummus. Again, scientifically <laughs> impossible. And the R&D teams would come over and they would be like, I mean, I'll just never forget the, the lead scientist of Sabra was just baffled. She goes, "This, there's no way. And I'm like, no, we have, you know, ingredients from the rainforest. I and mean, we were just making up stuff left and right. But we, made, we packaged it. It looked real. But Biggie, when it, it had so much sugar and chocolate and all that, I mean, it was delicious. And we're like, oh, zero calories. She's like, that's impossible. And she'd get so, I'll never forget how mad she got. And she was like taking photos of it. And finally we had to like go get security to ask her to leave. Right. And we were doing it because we knew it would throw them off. Yeah. Cause you didn't want, obviously if you, they knew what you were doing, then they would be like, Oh, well, we're going to get into that game. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then the sense. buyers would come by and they'd be like zero calorie. I was like, Oh, don't worry about that. Look at these salad dressings. You know? And we did that for like a year and a half. And what it did is by the time Sabra caught on to what we were doing, we had already landed in about 10,000 grocery stores. I mean, literally like 15 months. They didn't see it coming. To which the next point was, the next year trade show, she came over and was just like, <laughs> she goes, that is the bamboozlement. Oh, she goes, you, our whole company, half of Pepsi knows who you guys are. And I was like, you know what? I, I'm, I'm proud of myself for that. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. That, that's awesome. Very, very cool. So then 
without going into too much, obviously your things. So you were, you know, that's kind of amazing success. But I also know that like now, Odang, you kind of, uh, you know, even though it was your baby, you've kind of now it's you're 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 there, but not there. So I want to I kind of want to I was kind of curious a little bit about how difficult of a process is that when it's something that you kind of you created and nurtured um, and you've kind of it's kind of gotten to a point and you're kind of like, hey, I'm ready to take the next step with it. Um, how difficult was that for you to be able to do? Well, you know, we had a couple acquisition kind of conversations come up in like the summer of 2019. I was one of them was really serious and there was potential I was going to go with the company and have to move and stuff. And it was kind of scary and exciting because at least I was still part of it. Um, but it was an acquisition. So like another big brand was going to buy us. So like that's when I really kind of had to start swallowing the hard pill of like, oh my God, this is where it's going to go. And I had no idea what I was doing when I started building this company. I didn't know how CPG works. I didn't know how building big companies potentially worked. You know, there's kind of a lifestyle like avenue you could take where you build them nice and slow and they're yours forever. And then going on Shark Tank without realizing it, I mean, Shark Tank is venture capital. Yeah. You know, so I kind of accidentally opened the door to venture capital without realizing what venture capital truly was. And their whole thing is get in and get out. You know, build it, blow it up. You know, everybody makes some money and, and we do it again and again and again. So I kind of went down that path and it became such a monster there was no way to then take it to a, I didn't have the capital to take it out of that situation on my own. Um, so I was like, all right, I kind of had to swallow that pill. Like, Oh, this is the path I accidentally took on it. Uh, but I, I was okay with it at the time. Yeah. And then uh, we were kind of talking about acquisitions and stuff like that. And then my partners and I, uh, my investors originally, we were not seeing eye to eye on a lot of things about how the company should go forward. Yeah. Um, and it came down to, I wasn't having fun under those circumstances. You know, it, it was a lot of stress and scrutiny from relationship-wise of my, my couple of investors. Uh, I knew I was young. I knew I had fun. I knew I was learning a ton of stuff. Yeah. And I knew Odang was in a place where I could have stayed and I could have kept it going. And, you know, they basically gave me an ultimatum, uh, which was stay and do as they say. Or don't, and I was like, okay, well, I, I didn't, I didn't create this life to, yeah. to, you know, kind of fit in, fit in a box, if you will. Got it. So that's kind of the route I took, um, and I left in, you know, basically January 2020, uh, and was like, you know what, this is, this is where I'm at. It yeah. was, it was heartbreaking because it was not the ending I wanted yeah. for myself in Odang. Um, I don't really know. Even if I sold it for, you know, myself, I had a chance to actually sell it and work that next year or two. Watching it still incorporate under a different brand would still have been just as hard. Yeah. You know, because they're going to get in there. They're going to change a bunch of stuff. Oh, yeah. That's uh, just what they do. So, I mean, it was it was grieving. I mean, there was a lot of crying. There was a lot of like, what do I do now? Who am I? Yeah. Um, and COVID hit. You know, I was going to take some some time off because spend some, I mean, because I really, especially the last couple of years before COVID, I mean, I, I gave myself to that to that mission. Yeah, uh, missed a lot of stuff in my life, which I, I don't recommend to anyone. But I did it, and I was like, all right, well, I'm gonna spend time with family and stuff, and travel a little bit, you know, take a little break. We all got locked down, and you couldn't do anything. Yeah. So you know, that's when I kind of really had some chance to quietly self reflect. What? Who am I? What do I want to do? Where do I want to go? What next? 
you know, the Odang chapter is kind of closing. Um, you know, I'm still an investor in Odang today. Um, you know, hopefully, you know, good things happen to that company exactly. and, and it goes on to someone else that we originally planned. Um, but you know, I actually went and helped another, uh, food startup kind of launched their product and, uh, spent the last 15 months doing that. And, uh, you know, I realized, yeah, this is, this is what I love doing. I love yeah. the building. You know, I love the challenges. I love the problems. Uh, you know, this is what makes me happy. So it all worked out like awesome, like really awesome. Yeah. I mean, and, and like what you said, it's kind of like, uh, it just kind of works its purpose. We, uh, when we were chatting before, I was kind of curious about the aspect cause, um, having to do with the idea of passion, um, when you start something with like a passion and, and a projects and things like that, I kind of wanted to get a little bit about your thoughts on that just because, um, obviously like I, um, I'm seeing it. I see from talking to different guests. One of the things I notice is that, you know, when sometimes when you're too passionate about something or if it's too much your baby, um, you're too close to it and therefore you're not willing yeah. to pivot and kind of grow from it. Yep. So I kind of wanted to get a little bit of an idea because now, now you're kind of working in the space where you're, you're kind of helping other businesses using your creativity, using that kind of thought process. But at the same time, you're kind of like, you know, after you, after you help or do your thing or consulting, you just walk off to the next thing. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about that aspect of it? Like how, how difficult is it sometimes to be able to grow a business or to be able to sometimes make those decisions when you're so passionate or so involved into it? You know, yeah, you could be blinded by your passions, right? Um, you know, we were, we were talking about this before. I am passionate about food. Mm -hmm. I wasn't necessarily like, you know, I woke up and thought about hummus. Yeah. Like I, you know, I'm Polish and Native American. I didn't know what hummus was in Nordic. I didn't know what, you know, uh, hummus was until I was like 17 when I worked at a restaurant, right? Yeah. So, like, it wasn't like I grew up with these, like, family recipes. My family didn't even know what hummus was until I was on Shark Tank. Literally, when I was on Shark Tank, <laughs> they were like, oh, so wait, this is a serious thing, huh? I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, because they thought I was... uh you know, a hippie for doing the farmer's markets, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I, then they started seeing my vision for what I was trying to do. Passion is, you should be passionate about drive and motivation. You should be passionate about becoming something. You should be passionate about being happy. Mm -hmm. I no longer think you should be passionate necessarily about your, your, your startup. Like that's not, it doesn't sound right. You don't need to be passionate about your startup. That's what I want to say. Because if you're happy and it makes you happy and it's something you love to do, great. doesn't mean you eat, breathe, and sleep that thing. Because Correct. at this point in time, I've seen a lot of people with super successful products and super successful brands, and they love what they do, but their passions are all these other things. You know, you know helping people, giving back, you know, whatever, skiing. I mean, whatever your passion is, right? Yeah. Your family. Passion is a strong word, but they are super happy about being, you know, Clio bar or perfect bar or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, your passion can sometimes get you in trouble because when you go all in, you, you, you are almost skeptical to let anybody help you. You feel like someone's going to take it from you yeah. when really, which then shuts you down from being able to get help that you need or, you know, taking that next step. That's so scary, you know? So it's like, the other thing too are people I've seen, I've seen this a hundred times. Oh, well, I have, a, I have an idea for a business, but ah, I'm just not passionate about it. Well, do you like it? Like one guy was cybersecurity. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's cool. Cybersecurity is awesome. I'm not passionate about it, but would you do it every day? 
Oh yeah, yeah, I love it. Okay, well then do cybersecurity. Like, dude, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. a lot of us go to work and we're like, oh, I love my job, yeah. but I'm not going to give you my entire life, 25 hour, 24 hours a day for that. You know what I mean? You're passionate about your family. You're passionate about your, your loved ones. You know, like I said, hobbies, whatever. Mm-hmm. Some people are are lucky and create passions into businesses. But what I think is kind of scary, like I'm, I'm very passionate about cars. love cars. I don't know if I'd want to be a mechanic because I'm spending 14 hours a day working on other people's cars on the weekends, am I going to really want to work on my own cars? Correct. You know, so it, it's kind of a balance of that. And I think my my perspective is shift. You should do stuff you like doing, no doubt. But don't always think it has to be passion. Because if you enjoy doing it, well, that's good enough. Yeah. If you can go to work every day and talk about it and you're happy about it, good enough. You know what I mean? Um, because it's just funny. I've seen a lot of people not start businesses because they're like, yeah, but it's not my passion. But do you hate it? Oh, I don't hate it. I love it. Okay, well that works. You know, like, that's good enough. Yeah, that's good try enough. that. Yeah, you, started. Yeah, so I think people sometimes think like, "Why well, should only start a business if it's a hobby or something I yeah. do every day?" I, we wouldn't have. I mean, who's passionate about the healthcare system? Yeah, you know, who's passionate about you know, uh, uh, COVID? You know, I thank God people like doing it. Yeah. You know, so we had COVID testing centers and stuff. You I know? think I think a lot of it also is the fact that sometimes you can you can just like you can think of a problem and be like, "Oh, there's a solution to yeah. it," or and then. I want to, I want to be able to help it. And maybe that's kind of what, how it goes. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, like you said, no one, no one ever wants to do like, Hey, I want to do COVID tests or right. I want to do, I don't know, a dog scooping business. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, you know, but there's a solution and there's a business and there's a thing and you came up with it and you go with it. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the amazing, uh, amazing aspect of it. I mean, that's why I tell my wife all the time. I'm like, never, I never laugh. I am always amazed by all the different small businesses when I do markets or indie markets because uh, there is there is a there is someone there's someone for everyone uh, when it comes to like your niche of whatever it is even though you may be look at it and go who the hell would buy this yeah but guess what there's people buying it I mean it's, you just gotta find the right person uh, that likes it and that is into it and that's kind of how it goes so I totally uh, I totally get that well you know it's funny there's these two girls I follow they own a brand called Stony Clover. Uh, huge uh, successful brand online direct to consumer it's like bags and purses and my girlfriend she loves them they, they break so many of the business rules and I just love it you know because like that's kind of where I'm at with like the passion story it's like but if you like doing it do it yeah you know like if you think it's gonna solve like me I'm passionate about entrepreneurship yeah I love that's my passion starting I mean I don't want to corner myself and I'm just passionate about food brands I do I want to do it all so these girls you know they're like well, you know, they did a podcast. And they're like, well, we don't, uh, we don't do market research. They go, we don't pay for that stuff. Like, we don't, we don't watch trends. We just make stuff we like because we know there are other girls out there like us. Yeah. And yo, I that, like rocked me because I'm like, I get, I get paralysis by analysis sometimes with yeah. or analysis, whatever the way it goes. Yeah. Uh, sometimes with launching new stuff because I'm like, oh my god, are people gonna want this? And I just recently I, I'm kind of doinking with a new project and I'm like, you know what? I want it. I think it's bomb. There's other people like me. I'm like, so full send, let's go. Yeah. And it's just funny because everything they launch crushes because they don't settle and they make it exactly how they would want to buy it. Yeah. And, and I love that because sometimes people just get so hung up on the, oh, I don't know if it's going to work. Would you pull money out and buy it for someone else? Oh yeah. Done. 
<laughs> do you it. Know, you know what I mean? Like, do it. Do it. Yep. yep. No, I get it. Um, a few things. One, I know that you did. Um, I know you did some mentorship and you like speak at UCF, like their launch pad, entrepreneurial launch pad. Um, I was kind of curious. What are some, when you see all these different people running businesses and stuff like that, what are, do you see any common issues that you've seen people trying to start their own business that you, you kind of like a common thing that you've noticed or, or see as someone's doing it? So yeah, I, I, you know, go Knights, you know, huge, charge on. yeah, charge on, right. We're both huge alumni. <laughs> I owe so much to that school. So, you know, for all the help they gave me. Yeah. So I love to give back. I go up uh, once a month and coach at the launch pad up there for the whole day. Um, and, and whether it's the launch pad or high school kids I talk to, or even adults at, you know, seminars, but whatever I, you know, I end up speaking at or talking to the two things I see constantly that I just try to shake the, the hell out of people. One, it's never going to be perfect. If it's perfect, you've launched too late. Yep. Right. So I, I've just seen so many people where they're like, oh my God, it's not ready yet. Or, you know, oh, I need this to happen or I need this late. I see label and packaging constantly. Oh, I don't have the packaging right. Do you either, or they'll try to trademark or patent a name uh, or a product or, or whatever. And I'm like, do you even know if people want this product? Have you had, you know, it's called traction. Do you have any sort of traction to prove that? Yeah. Well, no. So, and I, a biggie, I've seen this. I, one person was going to mortgage their, their family's home. Okay. The mom and dad was going to mortgage their home for this kid to try to put a patent on the product. And I'm like, this is a very easy thing to quickly test. And by you testing quickly enough, you'll be able to see the response and still file a patent to protect yourself. Like, you know, there's a way to do it. And you spent almost no money versus mortgaging your parents' home, which yeah. which is how uh, businesses get upside down immediately yeah. in bad spots. Uh, so I see that constantly where it's like, dude, just get out and see if you can test it. And there's a million ways nowadays, especially with social media, to hack together something to test a response. Whether it's clicks to your website, whether it's signing up for an email list, saying, oh, alert me when that comes soon. You can now make a prototype of a product, get on TikTok, talk about this and saying this launches in four weeks, email, sign up on the website. You'll instantly see how serious people are about buying it and it costs you only the money it is to make the prototype. And then all you do is you go, hey guys, thanks for sending up my email list. We're having some delays. It's going to take another two months. You know, that's number one. And number two is it's the second half of that. Why I need a hundred thousand dollars to launch this product. No, you don't. How big is your market size? What do you mean? That's my point exactly. You need to be on Google. You yeah. need to be doing research. Who are your competitors? Well, I don't have any competitors. I pull up my phone. I find three competitors within 15 minutes, right? So it's like you have to know your business before you build your business. Who's in your market? Who's and My favorite thing is, oh, this has never been done before. I find three customers doing it already, yep. which is not a bad thing. Yeah. Competition's great. It means people are buying it. Mm -hmm. Is your product better? Yeah. So those are the two things I see constantly. One, they're so afraid to just start selling or, or doing, you know, and give me any business on earth and I could figure out a way to get it in a beta test form within a couple weeks. I don't care what you're building. I don't care if it's an electric car. It doesn't matter. You can prove your concept to see if there's any kind of interest. And then number two is you don't need capital. People that are given capital are usually the ones that fail out the fastest because their back's not against the wall. They're too loose and they try to buy their way out of problems. And usually that's not the solution. You know, you got to get creative and you got to figure out, okay, what on the back end is, is really tripping us up here. So 
those are the two things I see constantly. And it's, a, I, I always, it's like almost what I open up with when I coach, you know, yeah. I watch what they say. Then I immediately go, yep. It's one of the, it's one of the two or usually both, you know? So okay. top five things you think every startup business should have. Number one, which is so funny, right? Okay. So number one is you, the entrepreneur. You have to be in it. Like, I mean, this, I, whenever I look at an investment, whenever I look at a new brand coming up, the first thing I look at is the jockey, not the racehorse. Racehorse being the product, jockey being the entrepreneur. You could have the fastest racehorse in history. If you don't have a jockey that can hang on, you got nothing. You got nothing, right? So I always, and I learned this when I was early on too, because I it's weird. I got a lot of yeses. When I was like, I don't understand why these people are supporting me. It was because apparently I was a good jockey, right? Uh, So that's the number one thing I look for nowadays. And it's very prevalent, very easy to see a good jockey versus one that needs some help to learn or one that's just probably, unfortunately, not cut out for racing horses, right? I.e. entrepreneurship. You have to be a self-starter. You have to. No one's going to hold your hand, right? No one's going to pick you up when you fall. But if you need someone to hold your hand or pick you up when you're going to fall, a good jockey will figure out a way how to surround themselves with mentors and advisors and et cetera to keep that support system there. Uh, and, and you got to be a firefighter. You got to be willing to know that. Like my favorite part about my career is every day is a problem. I embrace it. It's a challenge. It's like a puzzle every day. And I love putting puzzles together. The second thing is you got to have a good idea, right? And I'm not talking Facebook. I'm talking a business that has traction. It could be pooping or scooping dog poop. It could be the next Facebook. It'd be the next TikTok, whatever. It could be anything in between. There's no magnitude of like, you know, oh, that's a 10 out of 10, a good idea. You know, if it's going to make money and create a business, like that's a good idea. Do you like doing it? It's a good idea. Is it solving a problem? It's a good idea. Three, four, and five. Three is probably storytelling. Um, You got to have good storytelling. And one of my favorite brands right now is Liquid Death. They're, I mean, they're one of the fastest growing CPG brands in the world right now. They just have canned water. Yeah. It's just water. They don't even make anything. No. It, but they tell a badass story. Gideon. He makes a chocolate chip cookie. Is it a good chocolate chip cookie? Yes. It's great. How many great chocolate chip cookies exist in this country? I've traveled all over this country at this point. I've had a lot of great cookies. Gideon is a phenomenal storyteller. Yep. Number four, branding. Let's use Gideon. With Gideon's phenomenal storytelling, he has some really, and I'm not saying great, I'm not saying you have to have great branding, you have to have creative branding. I've seen brands have nothing on their labels and kill it. If it matches the storytelling, it's phenomenal, right? So don't get hung up on your brand because sometimes less is more. Sometimes rickety is better. You know, it just, it just how the storytelling goes. And be consistent about it. Number five is consistency. Bingo. You know, if you're going to do a startup, and I don't care if you're going to start a podcast, I don't care if you're going to become a a social media influencer, if I could have one word tattooed on me, it's consistency. You know, that, I don't care what you want to do in life. You want to lose weight? Consistency. You want to, you know, uh, become vegetarian, vegan? Consistency. It's showing up every day. It's working on it every single day. It's going to be hard. And you're going to still show up to work. It's going to give you fun. You're still going to show up to work. Consistency. It will pull you through 
messes and hard times more than you'll ever realize just still showing up and working. And it might not seem like it's going to go well, but like when Odang and some of my other ventures that I've been part of now have hit really rough patches that you want to get scared and you want to quit. You want to get scared and you want to go hide and you can't because it's your show. So you show up and you're scared and you want to cry and you probably do cry. I have cried in the middle of work for hours and days but I showed up and the problems always work themselves out. You know, if you keep at it, you, the solution will present itself. So yeah, number five, and really I, mean, I would venture to say one and five are probably interchangeable. The whole list could kind of rock back and forth, but consistency is everything. Yeah. I love it, dude. I love it. Where can, uh, where can people follow you? Um, I definitely recommend following him on TikTok. He's uh, that's amazing. We we if we had more time, I'd definitely bring up that topic of how you've kind of hit. Um, I I specifically like the outfits of the day. Um, oh, thanks, when you man. do those, <laughs> I, I appreciate those uh, as a big guy. So I definitely appreciate that. Um, but where can people follow you? Um, and reach out to you. Obviously, I know you get a lot of DMs and a lot of people asking you to kind of get tips and tricks and all that goodness. But uh, but just to follow, just to kind of see your see where you're going and where uh, what you're up to next. Yeah, it's kind of crazy because, you know, we talked earlier about Odang being my my almost identity. Uh, and over the last, you know, whatever, 18 months since I left Odang, uh, well, almost two years, I guess now, I've, I'm a part of so many things. It's crazy, yeah. you know. So really now it's just, yeah, Real Jesse Wolf on Instagram, Real Jesse Wolf on TikTok. Shoot me a message. I love messages, especially about business. I love to help people as much as I can. Um, there's actually, uh, a couple of Facebook groups, you know, just food entrepreneur Facebook groups. I even get in there. It's easier to kind of do group things, you know, and I'll pop on, you know, once every couple of weeks just to answer questions for newer food brands. Yeah. So anything entrepreneurship related, you know, just shoot me a DM and either, you know, just say entrepreneurship or business startup or, you know, lunch with Biggie, you know, and I'll, I'll tend to pull those out, you know, and, uh, answer them first. So love to help, you know, any way I can. And, you know, people helped me along my way and took the time. So I do it as much as I, I possibly can now. Yeah. No, I get it. I, you probably get quite a bit of it as well, though. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and time is money sometimes. So I totally understand that as well. It's uh, there's only so much. There's only so much sometimes you got to. There's only so uh, many hours in a day. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, I'm, it's, and yeah. I'm starting to learn that as well, because people are starting to come to me and sometimes and I'm my wife will ask me. She's like, well, you just like spent all this time with them. I'm like what? But, and I was like, yeah, I'm like, I'm trying to help them. I'm like, but, but then you end up hurting yourself sometimes. Yeah. You know, and I'm with you. I learned that the hard way because we're both really nice guys, you yeah. know, and, and I love people and I love helping people. But yeah, I mean, sometimes you know, I had to learn the hard way to, holy hell, I, okay, hold on. I, you know, so that's why I purposely just set aside days or set aside yeah. time. And if you can make that window, great. And if you can't, I just had to unfortunately draw boundaries because otherwise, I yeah. mean, I didn't, I didn't get anything done for my own stuff. Yeah. So <laughs> totally get that. Pretty wild. Totally get that. Well, Jesse, thank you so much, man. I appreciate our friendship. I appreciate all the Likewise. information that you've, uh, that you've always kind of provided me. You've always been, uh, there to listen. And I, and I always appreciate that. So I definitely, uh, thank you so much. I've been wanting to have you on for a while. Our schedules just never kind of, uh, work together. So yeah. I kind of, I'm so glad we got a chance to, to do this today. Um, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for Jesse for being on having lunch with me. Definitely make sure to go check them out. Uh, real Jesse Wolf. Um, you'll see it on, you'll see it on all my social and everything when I, when I tag them on everything. So you'll be able to see them from there. Um, if you enjoyed the show, definitely make sure to subscribe. Um, I definitely appreciate it. If you left me uh, a review, you can put some stars, you can leave a review on the show, what you thought of it. The more people that see it, the better, obviously the more eyes will get 
aspect to it. Um, so I do appreciate that. If you want to support me, you can check out my brand, Deli Fresh Threads. Do some shopping. Tell your friends. Spread it like PB&J. Um, thank you. Until next time, keep eating sandwiches and follow your passion. Thanks, everyone.